Book the First, Part 13 of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the First, Part 13. Though exhibiting indifference, Somerset had felt a pang of disappointment when he heard the news of Paula's approaching dinner party. It seemed a little unkind of her to pass him over, seeing how much they were thrown together just now. That dinner meant more than it sounded. Notwithstanding the ruminess of her castle, she was at present living somewhat incommodiously, owing partly to the stagnation caused by her recent bereavement, and partly to the necessity for overhauling the distancy lumber piled in those vast and gloomy chambers before they could be made tolerable to nineteenth-century fastidiousness. Give dinners on any large scale, before Somerset had at least set a few of these rooms in order for her, showed, to his thinking, an overpowering desire for society. During the week he saw less of her than usual, her time being to all appearance much taken up with driving out to make calls on her neighbours and receiving return visits. All this he observed from the windows of his studio overlooking the castle ward, in which room he now spent a great deal of his time, bending over drawing boards and instructing Dare, who worked as well as could be expected of a youth of such varied attainments. Nearer came the Wednesday of the party and no hint of that event reached Somerset, but such as had been communicated by the Baptist minister. At last, on the very afternoon, an invitation was handed into his studio, not a kind note in Paula's handwriting, but a formal printed card in the joint names of Mrs. Goodman and Miss Power. It reached him just four hours before the dinner-time. He was planning to be used as a stop-gap at the last moment because somebody could not come. Having previously arranged to pass a quiet evening in his rooms at the Lord Quantock Arms, in reading up chronicles of the castle from the county history, with the view of gathering some ideas as to the distribution of rooms therein before the demolition of a portion of the structure, he decided offhand that Paula's dinner was not of sufficient importance to him as a professional man and student of art to justify a waste of the evening by going. He accordingly declined Mrs. Goodman's and Miss Powers's invitation and at five o'clock left the castle and walked across the fields to the little town. He dined early, and, clearing away heaviness with a cup of coffee, applied himself to that volume of the county history which contained the record of Stancy Castle. Here he read that, When this picturesque and ancient structure was founded, or by whom, is extremely uncertain. But that a castle stood on the site in very early times appears from many old books of charters, in its prime it was such a masterpiece of fortification as to be the wonder of the world, and it was thought, before the invention of gunpowder, that it never could be taken by any force less than divine. He read on to the times when it first passed into the hands of de Stancy Chevalier, and received the family name, and so from de Stancy to de Stancy, till he was lost in the reflection whether Paula would or would not have thought more highly of him if he had accepted the invitation to dinner. Applying himself again to the tome, he learned that in the year 1504 Stephen the carpenter was paid eleven pence for necessary repairs, and William the master mason eight shillings for white liming of the kitchen and the lime to do it with, including a new rope for the fire bell. Also the sundry charges for clocks, little pans, a pair of pothooks, a fire pane, a lantern, a chafing dish, and candlesticks. 
Bang went eight strokes of the clock. It was the dinner hour. There, now I can't go anyhow, he said bitterly, jumping up and picturing her receiving her company. How would she look? What would she wear? Profoundly indifferent to the early history of the noble fabric, he felt a violent reaction towards modernism, eclecticism, new aristocracies, everything, in short, that Paula represented. He even gave himself up to consider the Greek court that she had wished for, and passed the remainder of the evening in making a perspective view of the same. Next morning he awoke early, and, resolving to be at work betimes, started promptly. It was a fine, calm hour of day. The grass slopes were silvery with excess of dew, and the blue mists hung in the depths of each tree for want of wind to blow them out. Somerset entered the drive on foot, and, when near the castle, he observed in the gravel the wheel-marks of the carriages that had conveyed the guests thither the night before. There seemed to have been a large number, for the road where newly repaired was quite cut up. Before going indoors, he was tempted to walk round to the wing in which Paula slept. Rooks were cawing, sparrows were chattering there, but the blind of her window was as closely drawn as if it were midnight. Probably she was sound asleep, dreaming of the compliments which had been paid her by her guests, and of the future triumphant pleasures that would follow in their train. Reaching the outer stone stairs leading to the great hall, he found them shadowed by an awning, brilliantly striped with red and blue, within which rows of flowering plants in pots bordered the pathway. He could not have made more preparation had the gathering been a ball. He passed along the gallery in which his studio was situated, entered the room, and seized a drawing-board to put into correct drawing the sketch for the Greek court that he had struck out the night before, thereby abandoning his art principles to please the whim of a girl. Dare had not yet arrived, and after a time Somerset threw down his pencil and leant back. His eye fell upon something that moved. It was white, and lay in the folding chair on the opposite side of the room. On near approach he found it to be a fragment of swan's down, fanned into motion by his own movements, and partially squeezed into the chink of the chair, as though by some person sitting in it. None but a woman would have worn or brought that swan's down into his studio, and it made him reflect on the possible one. Nothing interrupted his conjectures till ten o'clock, when Dare came. Then one of the servants tapped at the door to know if Mr. Somerset had arrived. Somerset asked if Miss Parr wished to, to see him, and was informed that she had only wished to know if he had come. Somerset sent a return message that he had a design on the board which he should soon be glad to submit to her, and the messenger departed. Fine doings here last night, sir, said Dare, as he dusted his T-square. Oh, indeed. Dinner party, I hear. Eighteen guests. Ah said Somerset. The young lady was magnificent, sapphires and opals. She carried as much as a thousand pounds upon her head and shoulders during that three or four hour. Of course they call her charming. Compestua no hay moga fie, as they say at Madrid. I don't doubt it for a moment, said Somerset, with reserve. Dare said no more, and presently the door opened, and there stood Paula. Somerset nodded to Dare to withdraw into an adjoining room, and offered her a chair. Do you wish to show me the design you have prepared? she asked, without taking the seat. Yes, I have come round to your opinion. I have made a plan for the Greek court you were anxious to build. He elevated the drawing-board against the wall. 
She regarded it attentively for some moments, her finger resting lightly against her chin, and said, I have given up the idea of a Greek court. He showed his astonishment and was almost disappointed. He had been grinding up Greek architecture entirely on her account, and wrenched his mind round to this strange arrangement, all for nothing. Yes, she continued, on reconsideration I perceive the want of harmony that would result from inserting such a piece of marble work in a medieval fortress. So in future we will limit ourselves strictly to synchronism of satire, that is to say, make good the Norman work by Norman, the perpendicular by perpendicular, and so on. I've informed Mr. Havel of the same thing. Somerset pulled the Greek drawing off the board and tore it in two pieces. She involuntarily turned to look in his face, but stopped before she had quite lifted her eyes high enough. Why did you do that? she asked with suave curiosity. It isn't of no further use, said Somerset, tearing the drawing in the other direction and throwing the pieces into the fireplace. You have been reading up orders and styles to some purpose, I perceive. He regarded her with a faint smile. I have had a few books down from town. It is desirable to know a little about the architecture of one's own house. She remained looking at the torn drawing. When Somerset, observing on the table the particle of swan's down he had found in the chair, gently blew it so that it skimmed across the table under her eyes. It looks as if it came off a lady's dress he said idly. Off a lady's fan, she replied. Oh, off a fan? Yes, off mine. At her reply, Somerset stretched out his hand for the swan's down and put it carefully in his pocket-book, whereupon Paula, moulding her cherry-red lower lip beneath her upper one in arch self-consciousness at his act, turned away to the window, and after a pause said softly as she looked out, Why did you not accept our invitation to dinner? It was impossible to explain why. He impulsively drew near and confronted her and said, I hope you pardon me. I don't know that I can quite do that, answered she, with ever so little reproach. I know why you did not come. You were mortified at not being asked sooner. But it was purely by an accident that you received your invitation so late. My aunt sent the others by post, but as yours was to be delivered by hand, it was left on her table and was overlooked. Surely he could not doubt her words. Those nice, friendly accents were the embodiment of truth itself. I don't mean to make a serious complaint, she added in injured tones, showing that she did. Only we had asked nearly all of them to meet you as the son of your illustrious father, whom many of my friends know personally, and they were disappointed. It was now time for Somerset to be genuinely grieved at what he had done. Paula seemed so good and honourable at that moment that he could have laid down his life for her. When I was dressed, I came in here to ask you to reconsider your decision, she continued, or to meet us in the drawing-room if you could not possibly be ready for dinner. But you were gone. And you sat down in that chair, didn't you, darling, and remained there a long time, musing, he thought. But that he did not say. I am very sorry, he murmured. Will you make amends by coming to our garden party? I ask you the very first. I will, replied Somerset, who add that it would give him great pleasure, etc., seemed an absurdly weak way of expressing his feelings, and he said no more. 
is on the 19th. Don't forget the day. He met her eyes in such a way that, if she were woman, she must have seen it to mean as plainly as words. Do I look as if I could forget anything you say? She must indeed have understood much more by this time, the whole of his open secret. But he did not understand her. History has revealed that a supernumerary lover or two is rarely considered a disadvantage by a woman, from queen to cottage girl, and the thought made him pause. End of Book the First, Part 13